when we're in a good mood, it's easier to be productive, positive, and excited. But what happens when we find ourselves not interested in the things that used to motivate us? What if, despite our best efforts, we can't seem to simply get over it, feel better, and just be happy? In these moments, we may find with the help of a doctor that we have a form of depression. Last time, we had Dr. John Alpert, Chair of Psychiatry at Einstein, and Anonymous Annie, a friend who's living with depression and anxiety, help us better understand how to think about these disorders and what it's like to live with them. Today, we'll continue our interview by exploring the brain regions involved, how research is being conducted to develop new treatment options, and how social media has affected those with depression. You're listening to Neuron Air, brought to you by the next generation of neuroscientists at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Bronx, New York, who explore your brain's phenomena one scientific adventure at a time. So what brain regions are involved in depression? Is that known? Like what structures or what what pathways? Um, So in terms of brain regions, a lot more is known um, now about regions of the brain we think are involved in depression. Um, Many of them are some of the more surface or superficial areas of the brain and cortical areas like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate. Some more deeper structures like the amygdala or the hippocampus. Um, the ventral striatum and the hypothalamus. So there are a lot of different brain regions that are pretty important for regulation of mood um, and also what we sometimes call vegetative functions like appetite and sleep and energy. We think there's, um, for at least some people with major depressive disorder, an imbalance where some of the cortical areas are underactive, they're not active enough, and some of the lower areas like the amygdala are overactive. So we've begun to think of depression, at least in some people, um, as um, a a change in the connections or the connectivity, uh, the ways that um, parts of the brain talk to each other, and particularly the the ways that the cortex talks to these lower regions of the brain, like the amygdala. There seems to be something imbalanced. There's been a lot of other interest um, in terms of um, hypotheses and clues about depression, Um, One has to do with certain neurotransmitter systems, um, neurochemical systems that are distributed in many parts of the brain, including the parts that we talked about, like the cortex and the ventral striatum and the amygdala. Um, The neurotransmitters that have been most focused on are called the monoamines. That includes serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And in fact, most antidepressants that are available today Um, boost uh, the effects of those different neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, and and dopamine. In recent years, we've become interested also in the role of inflammation because we've found that people who have signs of inflammation, maybe even because of another illness like ulcerative colitis or heart disease, who have elevated markers of inflammation have a much higher risk of having depression And also, if we look at people with depression, even if they don't have other medical illnesses, they tend to have higher markers of inflammation in uh, in their bloodstream. So we've begun to think that for some people, depression may be an inflammatory condition that affects both their body and, and also certain parts of the brain, like certain cells in the brain called microglia. Um, so inflammation is another area that's been uh, focused on. For some people, um, there may be changes in certain kinds of hormonal 
um, systems, particularly what's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, um, which produces cortisol and produces epinephrine, because in some people with depression, um, there are discernible changes in the levels of those hormones um, in, uh, in the body and presumably in the brain as well. There are also gender differences in unipolar depression, not in bipolar depression, where um, the male to female ratio is about one to one, but in unipolar major depressive disorder, um, the risk of having depression is about two to one female to male. Um, and that changes at puberty. Before puberty, it's one to one. After puberty, it's two to one, which again suggests that there might be some neuroendocrine hormonal um, factors um, that um, contribute to the risk for, uh, for depression. Okay, let's define some terms. Cortex generally means outer layer. When neuroscientists use the word, they're usually referring to the cerebral cortex, which is a folded part of the brain that you're probably familiar with when you see the outside of the brain. This region is the newest region of the human brain in terms of evolution and is responsible for much of our higher order thinking. Dr. John Albert commented that there could be an imbalance in how subregions of the cortex communicate with other regions. In particular, he mentioned the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex, which are part of the cortex that are involved in generation of emotion, and the amygdala, which also has a role in emotion, mostly fear, but it's located in a deeper part of the brain. And in contrast to the cortex, this evolutionarily older, more primal region of the brain. So these structures use the neurotransmitters that he mentioned, serotonin, which is correlated with love and positive emotion, dopamine, which has some roles in reward and also in movement, and norepinephrine, which are all technically classified as monoamines. Some of you may have heard of SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And what these do is they make serotonin more available for the neurons by slowing the breakdown of serotonin. So this actually helps to treat depression. You mentioned that some patients could have a family history of depression. So is there a genetic component? Let's say what fraction of patients would, would you say maybe have a genetic uh, component, family history, and how much of it could be maybe environmental or something that has to do with the inflammation that, that you mentioned, which, I mean, like, could you get sick from some kind of infection and that could induce depression because of chronic inflammation, or how does that work? Right. So we often think in terms of uh, what sometimes has been called a stress diathesis model. And a stress diathesis model means there's some external stress or events that are challenging to deal with, and we have a diathesis, which means we're at risk for developing depression. And that diathesis is related to a few possible factors. One is genetics, and I'll come back to that. Uh, one is early childhood adversity, particularly neglect or abuse. Um, and then the, um, the other, um, as I mentioned, has to do with gender, that women are a little bit more likely than men to have um, major depressive disorder. Those are risk factors. In terms of genetic risk, we know that if somebody has a first-degree relative, that is a parent, an offspring or a sibling with depression, that person is at three times the risk of having major depressive disorder than somebody who doesn't have a first degree relative. We think that the contribution of genetics is about 40, uh, 40 or 45% to the overall picture. So genetics is part of the picture in terms of developing 
major depressive disorder, but it's not the whole picture. I'll contrast that with bipolar disorder, which is even more genetic, that if somebody has a first-degree relative with bipolar disorder or manic depressive illness, there's a tenfold increased risk of developing bipolar disorder. And we think that the genetic contribution is more like 70 to 80 percent. So bipolar disorder is even more genetic than major depressive disorder, where both environment and genes um, seem to play um, similar, similar roles. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Probably there are people in my family who have anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder or some combination of all of those. Uh, we're not very forthcoming in talking about those, which is, you know, indicative of how we behave in a society. Like depression to me is when I feel really hopeless about something, when I feel like I have no control over something, I can't change it, uh, there's just no point in even trying. And anxiety, I suppose, is more to me about feeling too afraid or wondering what if. And even the fact of considering what if means that you know there are a lot of different possibilities, um, specifically to anxiety, a lot of things that can go wrong. But depression, you kind of don't even see those possibilities. So I've kind of experienced all of those thoughts, and it took me a while to, you know, really think about them and reflect upon them after having a really long period of doing very well and continuing to do well. Um, only then was I able to see, like, those habits and kind of recurring patterns of thought and help me identify, you know, when something bigger is going on. It is more, I think, situational for me. Something that helped me out greatly was moving abroad for a while because that was just a completely new change of pace and scenery and language, to be honest. So I do love, you know, traveling and trying to do those things that kind of break me out of what I see as a negative environment. It might not even just be a negative environment, but I think everyone kind of benefits from a change of scenery, a change of pace, just really getting yourself out of your head and back into the world to think about things from a different perspective, which is really hard to do sometimes when you're feeling down. But I suppose that's why it's important to recognize when it's going on and to reach out and let people know I would want to go back, kind of stepping back to research, because I don't. I think a lot of people don't really know how depression is being researched, because they know that there's these medicines that'll help. So, like, how do they conduct this research to lead to finding the medications and the mechanisms that are found in humans? Right. So, um, m many of the treatments that we have currently for depression were found by serendipity, that is, by fortunate chance, and then we went to animal models and, and so on to learn more about those treatments. So um, many of the, the treatments that we use currently um, were discovered um, because they were treatments that were developed for other reasons. For example, the first antidepressants like the monoamine oxidase inhibitors or MAO inhibitors were actually developed um, to treat tuberculosis. And it was found that some people with tuberculosis and depression uh, not only did their tuberculosis get better, but their mood got better, and people began to say, well, maybe, maybe this could be a treatment for de depression. And then we're interested in, well, how does this me medication actually work in the brain? And then we learned more about serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. And then we said, well, we could develop medications that are more selective and safer that just work on serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine and don't have these other side effects. So a lot of um, what we do in the treatment of depression was originally based on serendipity, particularly on the medication side. 
Nevertheless, there's a lot of interesting work done in animal models. As, as you say, animals can't acknowledge some of the core symptoms of depression, such as guilt or, or feelings of suicide or thoughts of suicide. But many of the animal models that exist are based on the notion of, of behavior generated by hopelessness. And so many of the animal models are animal models where mice or, or other um, laboratory animals are placed in a situation um, that's stressful and where it's not possible to escape from that stress. And so one is called the forced swim test where uh, mice might be placed in a beaker of water. They don't drown, but after a while, they give up trying to get out of the beaker and they just float passively on, on the water as if they've sort of given up hope of ever getting out of the beaker. And if an animal is placed in a beaker of water that way over a number of occasions, they become passive much more quickly. So earlier and earlier on in the, in the period of time they're in the beaker, they just give up because they've had the experience before and they've learned you, you just can't escape. But if you give them antidepressants, the, the, the period of time it takes for them to get passive is prolonged. That is to say, it's almost as if they maintain hope for a longer period of time. There are similar kinds of models, um, one called the tail suspension test, where you, you hold mice up by their tail, and after a while they give up trying to right themselves mm -hmm. to get um, upright, or social defeat, where you put uh, a mouse or a rat in with an aggressive mice or rat, and um, if they've lost a fight on several occasions, they'll give up trying. And they'll also show signs of losing interest in other activities. For example, most uh, mice or rats love to have sucrose or sugar, flavored water. Um, but if somebody has been in social defeat over and over again, they keep losing these, uh, these skirmishes with another mouse or rat, and then you give them a choice between water or sweetened water, they really don't show much of a preference as if they've lost interest in things that used to be pleasurable. So those are analogous to depression. They're not the same as human depression, um, but they do seem to respond to antidepressants. So we've been talking a lot about depression, but usually you hear depression and anxiety together. So I think that's also part of your, your practice, uh, is also seeing patients with anxiety and treating them. So why are depression and anxiety often talked about together? Is, is there a comorbidity? Is there a similar underlying mechanism? So what are the similarities and the differences between those two? Right. So it's, it's a great question in that the, the two have different names and present in somewhat different ways, uh, but there's significant convergence. Um, so some people have pure anxiety disorders, and anxiety disorders come in different flavors, just like depression does. Um, some people have panic attacks that are attacks of anxiety that come out of the blue. They're not because of something that's just happened to somebody. Um, somebody might be just driving or walking down the street and suddenly for 15 or 20 minutes um, will have a racing heart, will feel like they're about to die, will have shortness of breath, might have numbness and tingling, and it will, will be a very specific attack. And it, it often drives people to emergency departments because they feel they're having a stroke or a heart attack. That's one kind of anxiety, panic disorder. Another, which presents very differently, is called generalized anxiety disorder, which is uh, sometimes people call themselves worry warts, that, or at least in the old days, called themselves <laughs> worry warts. That's somebody who's just a chronic worry, or always, you know, if, um, uh, if a family member is, you know, 10 minutes late, coming home, they're immediately convinced that they must have gotten into some terrible accident. Mm -hmm. um, they're always worried about finances and grades and every, everything that they could possibly worry about keeps them up at night. 
Uh, that's generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and then social anxiety disorder, people who are um, extremely anxious in social situations, either in, in, in terms of speaking out in class or giving a public presentation, or even sometimes just asking directions on the street that somebody who really is very socially inhibited and it's sort of an extreme form of shyness. So those are all different forms of anxiety. They look very different. But we know that 40 to 60% of people who have any one of those forms of anxiety also at some point in their life develop depression. And conversely, about the same percentage, about 40 to 60% of people with depression at some point in their life have anxiety. One of the reasons why we think they're connected, one has to do with the overlap we just talked about, um, but the other is that um, some of the treatments that are most effective for depression, the so-called serotonin antidepressants, are also effective and approved by the Food and Drug Administration for treatment of anxiety disorders. Um, so we think that some of the monoamines, particularly serotonin, the neurotransmitter in the brain that has a, we believe has an important role in depression, also has an important role in anxiety. Um, so we think that there are biological linkages. One question that's been raised over the years is whether when people have both depression and anxiety, whether it's truly the overlap of two disorders, the way we might see somebody who has cancer and somebody with arthritis, those are two very common conditions, so it's not uncommon to see people with both, but we think that they're completely distinct. Um, when we see anxiety and depression, we don't know whether it's like that, that they're just two common disorders that come together uh, because they're both common, or is that a third form of, or fourth form of depression or anxiety? Should it have its own name, like anxious depression? Mm -hmm. And some people believe that that has its, you know, its own biology, and and you know, and it's it's a distinct form of, uh, of depression. I think that's an interesting proposition because we do see some people with depression who never have anxiety; it's never a part. And then we see people where um, d both depression and anxiety are equally prominent. It almost feels like a different disorder. It feels like a distinct condition. Uh, so my my personal area of of greatest interest has been in looking at novel treatments for depression that doesn't respond to usual treatments. And so I've been interested in um, different kinds of agents um, like the vitamin folate or L-methylfolate, another form of folate, um, or S-adenosylmethionine, which is available as a health supplement, but it is also a natural supplement in all mammals, I mean, a natural, a natural chemical in all mammals. Um, uh, looking at whether those um, different substances can boost the effects of antidepressants, um, as well as whether combining antidepressants together, um, like using two antidepressants rather than one for somebody who hasn't responded initially to antidepressants, will help boost the effects of depression. When I first trained as a psychiatrist, that was thought of as very sloppy treatment to use more than one medication. Nowadays, uh, it's become sort of the state of the field that often, because no one antidepressant works well enough, we often wind up treating people with more than one antidepressant. And that's true of other fields as well, that if you look at, for example, treatment of HIV, um, many people are on a cocktail of medications um, because each of the medications works by a slightly different mechanism, and together they build a stronger medication. We found that to be true in depression as well, that people with severe depression often need to be on a range of medications that have, have somewhat different mechanisms. I've also been interested in newer medications like ketamine, which is a medication that 
when it works for depression, and usually it's given intravenously or, or through the nose, through a, a nose spray, uh, it gets into the brain very rapidly that way. Um, for some people who haven't responded to standard antidepressants, seem, seems to work. And so there, there's some novel antidepressants that work by mechanisms that don't involve serotonin or norepinephrine and dopamine that are a very, a, of a great deal of interest to me and to others nowadays in that they suggest that there are new avenues for treating depression that we might not have used fully um, in, in the past. And that's true across the board. It's true not only of medications, but it's true of psychotherapy. So different forms of psychotherapy, like mind, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, is a version of a kind of therapy called cognitive behavior therapy, merged with um, Eastern approaches um, that um, you know are seen in yoga, but also seen in mindfulness therapy. Um, that has been a very promising form of psychotherapy for people with chronic or long-term depression. And then there are device-based treatments that, um, uh, again, I've been involved mainly in a collaborative way um, with, uh, in terms of new forms of stimulating the brain, like uh, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, a way of stimulating particularly those superficial areas or cortical areas of the brain that seem to be out of out of balance mm -hmm. um, with deeper areas of the brain that uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation in recent years has been um, a, a way to, we, we think, to restore more normal connections between the cortex and deeper areas of the brain. So there are a lot of very interesting developments in, in all dimensions of treatment, um, medication areas, psychotherapy areas, device-based areas like magnetic stimulation, um, and some of the what are sometimes called complementary and integrative treatments like exercise or fish oils or uh, vitamins like folate, um, uh, yoga, are, are all forms of complementary and integrative treatments that have been, been very interesting. And there are certainly areas that just haven't been researched enough that people often ask about, like acupuncture, um, where there's been a small amount of research, but we need to have better quality research to really know whether um, some of those forms of treatment work uh, work well, but we th they they certainly show promise, and certainly in other countries they they're often the first line treatment for depression. So, how much is known about the the mechanisms of these these other forms of therapy that you're talking about? Right, so that, um, again, serendipity or chance has driven a lot of these treatments, like the finding with ketamine. Mm -hmm. Ketamine was used for many years as an, and still is as um, an agent um, for anesthesia during surgery to put people to sleep, but it was, it was noticed by chance that at very low doses, um, some people seemed to have uh, elevated mood who had been depressed for years and hadn't responded to uh, treatment and that that was first noticed in 2000. People forgot about the finding, and then it was looked again at the National Institutes of Health in 2006. Sure enough, it it did seem to work, and it set off um, a whole uh, set of studies. And um, th some of those studies have had to do with the mechanism of ketamine. And ketamine works on a neurotransmitter system called glutamate, mm -hmm. different from serotonin or dopamine, or norepinephrine. And so now it's set off um, a large set of studies trying to develop agents that work on the glutamate system to see whether they might resemble ketamine, but without some of the problems that ketamine has. Um, ketamine has a series of side effects that make it less 
um, feasible for clinical treatment. And so um, it's opened up new doors, but those doors were initially opened up by serendipity, not because somebody said maybe glutamate is involved in mm -hmm. depression. Uh, they said, oh, wow, people are getting better on ketamine. I wonder how ketamine works, and, and then have looked more at the mechanism of, uh, of, of ketamine. We know very little about the mechanism of action of psychotherapies. Um, there, there are a lot of interesting studies using um, different kinds of brain imaging, like functional magnetic resonance imaging or quantitative EEG, different ways of measuring the electrical activity of the brain. Um, so there have been different ways of trying to understand the brain mechanisms of psychotherapy. And then psychologists are interested also in learning about the psychological mechanisms, like what, what exactly is it that, how does somebody's conceptual framework change during the course of psychotherapy um, that allows somebody who was seeing the glass half empty now see the, mm -hmm. the, the world glass, uh, see the, uh, world, uh, the, the glass half full. We know that if somebody is depressed, simply telling them, snap out of it, your life is really good. I don't understand why you're so you right. know, so down. Um, we know we know that doesn't work, and in fact, often it makes somebody feel worse because now they feel guilty that in mm -hmm. fact they have a good life, but they're feeling <laughs> depressed anyway. Um, so our best efforts to simply talk people out of depression doesn't work. But certain forms of psychotherapy work very well, and so trying to understand what are the psychological mechanisms also, in addition to the neurobiological mechanisms. So there's a lot of work, but uh, more many more questions than answers. Like many things, most things in fact, social media can be good, but too much of a good thing can be detrimental. We are so interconnected now with our friends and family, but also with people we've never met. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all of it lets us into people's lives and often we compare ourselves to others when it comes to certain benchmarks like having babies, having a good job, being quote unquote successful. While you can find groups of like-minded people, you can also find malice and people that are sensitive to depression can see this lack of something, which increases their depressive symptoms. There have been multiple instances where cyberbullying precipitates depression in young people resulting in suicide. It's not all bad, however. Social media can be a reprieve for people with depression. We talked to Anonymous Annie about her experience with social media, which was fortunately quite positive. And then we asked Dr. Albert about what his view is on how social media and the internet affect people and the role it could play in helping those with depression recognize that they may need to seek support. Overall, social media um, has, uh, you know, I think it's been very positive in, in terms of depression awareness, um, information about depression, social support um, for depression and making it a much more matter-of-fact topic and so that um, it's much more likely nowadays that people understand depression the way it's always been, which is w one of the common health conditions of human beings that just like cardiovascular disease or cancer, um, uh, it's one of the ways in which we're all vulnerable to health conditions and depression is just one of the manifestations, just like asthma or migraine or an anything else. Um, and I've really been gratified um, to see that, uh, you know, college students or medical students that I'm talking to or when I, you know, when I go to a gathering, um, people are very um, 
open about asking me about an antidepressant they're on or that they're looking for a therapist, um, they, they might take me aside and speak to me privately, but sometimes they, you know, they'll raise it at, uh, at the table or in the lecture hall um, as, as something which is quite matter of fact. Um, and, uh, you know, going back uh, 15 or 20 years ago, that, that would be almost unheard of. So I think the degree um, to which stigma has been successfully addressed through social media and, and, and other avenues and specific mental health campaigns has been um, very, very gratifying. I, you know, I think without question, um, uh, you know, everything is a mixed blessing and nothing is exclusively positive that um, there is the Facebook effect that, you know, p people look at Facebook and feel everyone else has a wonderful life mm -hmm. and has friends and is enjoying themselves. And when somebody is sinking into depression and going on Facebook and try and comparing themselves and feeling isolated, um, it, it can it, it can be difficult. That that could be a challenge. Um, and so again, again, everything is a mixed blessing. Even things that are predominantly blessings, um, and uh, social media is that way. It is kind of interesting now thinking back to when I first, you know, really started to struggle with depression and anxiety. Or maybe it's one or the other. I'm still not sure. Again, that's something else I want to talk about. Formal diagnosis. I don't have one. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree that, you know, there's that Facebook effect that you see an overly rosy picture of most people's lives. Um, but for me, it's just helpful to remind myself that that's not the true reality 24 seven. I think people choose to celebrate the successes in their lives more and the beauty than the negativity. Um, so I try to be honest and transparent and I put a little mix of both out there. Uh, I don't like to put out too much negativity because I feel like sometimes that's a you know, a plea for just attention or just whining, and I don't want to put that out there, so I try not to, but uh, every once in a while I say, you know, yeah, this was a shitty week at work, um, things didn't go my way, and it's helpful just to be able to relate to people on that, on that level, and I'm glad when other people do the same. Different kind of social media that has also helped me, um, this was more of an anonymous form, so pre-Facebook, I was basically part of these online fitness forums, which sounds a little ridiculous, and that definitely tied into eating disorder stuff as well. But it was also this network where we could, we had these basically um, online journals. It was a little bit like live journal and a little bit like a Reddit message board. Um, but I got to know some women on a pretty personal level. I saw that other people were struggling with these sort of things. And while it was a fitness forum, there was definitely also a place to talk about body image issues, anxiety, depression, um, really things that are facing a lot of women, <clears throat> that a lot of women are facing, rather. And being able to relate to people, even through the anonymity of, you know, avatars and screen names, um, really helped me to make some of those connections. I actually ended up meeting some of those people in real life and becoming Facebook friends. <laughs> so <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, but Google has had a huge initiative for depression. They put up, they made it so that if someone Googles depression, one of the first hits is this questionnaire that comes up. And then it would inform you more about depression and then and then tell them if they either should go see someone else or not. And so I was wondering if you had an opinion on those. Do you think they're beneficial? I have a very positive opinion of um, screening tools for mm -hmm. depression, and one of the very nice um, developments in recent years has been, under the Affordable Care Act, increasing guidelines that have primary care doctors and uh, 
gynecologists and pediatricians and others doing depression screening in their offices, uh, both online and in person, although there are many scales that can be used. The, the, the one that's uh, been used, used most widely is called the PHQ-9 or the Patient Health Questionnaire 9. And many of us, if we go to our primary care doctor nowadays, will be asked the first two questions. And then if they are positive, we'll be asked the rest of the questions. The first two questions have to do with, you know, have you been down or sad lately? And or have you lost interest in things that used to give you pleasure? If you answer yes to one of them, then the PHQ-2 expands to the PHQ-9. And that's, I believe that's what Google used. The, the so-called sensitivity and specificity are high for, for rating scales like the PHQ-9. What that means is the chances of detecting depression, if it exists, is high, and the chances of not calling it depression if it's not depression is, is high. Um, so both false positives and false negatives, um, if there's high sensitivity and high specificity, it means false negatives are pretty low and false positives are pretty low, that you're likely to have the, the right diagnosis. Where it's important to make a distinction is that if you have a PHQ-9 that's positive, and um, positive means that your score is above a certain level, which happens to be 10. If, if you, you score up your PHQ-9 and it's, it's greater than 10, there's a pretty high chance that you have depression, but you could have something completely different. You could have a substance use problem. You could just have very short term, like the, these might be three very bad days for you, but tomorrow you might be better. You, you don't, you don't meet the, the diagnostic criteria for depression, you might have hypothyroidism, you might have a thyroid condition that needs to be replaced. So you need to be evaluated uh, by a clinician who's familiar with depression in order to make the diagnosis. Where it's very helpful though, uh, you know, for people to be able to take these scales is that it helps increase awareness about depression and also depression is very insidious. And by that I mean it creeps up on people. It, it's not like a, a flag, a red flag goes off or a light bulb goes off or you develop a rash or a <laughs> fever and you say, I'm sick. It, it starts gradually and people start you know, uh, feeling a little bit more low and their energy is low and they're less motivated and they're less optimistic about the future. They're, they, they have less self-confidence. They're beginning to lose hope in the future. Maybe they're having problems sleeping either too little or too much. Maybe their appetite is higher or lower. Maybe they're just beginning to think, you know, if I got hit by a car, I'm not going to kill myself, but if I died in my sleep or got hit by a car, it wouldn't be so bad. Maybe people would be better off without me. But it happens very insidiously, and it feels like it's just part of life, like this is just my life. You know, this is just what the way things are. And being able to go on Google or, or on other websites, like Mental Health America mm -hmm. is a good website, um, where people can take the, uh, the same scale and get resources in there. If you put in your zip code, it tells you resources in your area. It helps snap people out of that sense of this is just my, you know, this is just my life. And so sometimes what happens in the middle of the night, you know, somebody's saying, I don't know what's going on. You know, these last few months have been terrible. Maybe, maybe I am depressed. Why don't I go on, you know, Google yeah. and um, let, let me see. Um, and they take this and it comes out to say, you know, severe depression. And that's a wake up call. Um, it's not a diagnosis. They might have something else. It might be, you know, hypothyroidism or it might be Epstein-Barr virus or something else. Um, but it snaps them out of the sense that this is just sort of part of normal life and maybe I really do need help. Um, and so I, I think it's very helpful that, that 
uh, depression screening is now a routine part of primary care in most parts of the country, um, and that people can even screen themselves. To me, it's interesting that another doctor would be a fan of them. I would think that they might try to steer people away. So I think depending on the level of severity, um, those types of tests can be helpful or harmful because they might get you to think, oh, you know, my issues aren't really that bad. But they can be just a really good tool to help you reflect on your life, on what's going on, and to really take an honest, um, I suppose, objective look at those things and see whether, you know, you check any of those boxes. And if you do, this could be a sign that, you know, there are outlets for help. doesn't mean anything is wrong with you, but this is a thing, and there are people that can help with that thing. What worked for me is... Well, I think sometimes just the person isn't ready to get better on their own or doesn't really want to get better. And in that case, there's nothing you can really do for them. It has to be up to them. Uh, change has to come from within. Um, and the best thing that the friend or loved one can do in that case is just to be supportive and continue to be there. Um, not necessarily try to change the person or make them feel better because you can't really make someone feel better um, unless maybe you give them some acid or something. <laughs> We should keep, keep it. it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Give them some, really some chemicals to make them feel giddy and happy, but that's not maybe true, authentic happiness. It's transient, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think just knowing that the person is there and trying to help you, it does matter a lot, but you might be so stuck in your own head, you know, in that particular moment and in that pit, I guess, for lack of a better word, that you can't really see the help. And I don't know if there's anything that you can tell that friend to make things better um, or to make them more able to help you. It really just, you have to be patient and wait for them to, to yeah. be open to that change. And I to, know John said that he said that he was, his advice was just to be there. Like, yeah. just be that person in the room. Because when they actually do want help, they'll tell you. They'll, at least mm -hmm. they have someone to look for. To someone that's there that will that they can be like I need help and then the person yeah. can be like finally I've been here all day like <laughs> right <laughs> so if, if somebody out there who is listening thinks that okay maybe I have depression or anxiety based off the conversation that we had uh, what would you recommend that they do like the next steps for them to take Right. So um, one, uh, th th there are multiple things. If somebody um, likes using the internet as an initial source of um, information, there are a lot of very, very good um, resources on online. One is Mental Health America. Um, another one is the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. And another one is the American Association for Depression and Anxiety. All three of those websites have a lot of uh, materials on depression and anxiety. And if you put in those words, often those websites uh, pop up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, and, the, the, third, the one you said, the depression and anxiety was the one. It's like the third one that pops up if you, did, if you Google depression. That's wonderful. So that, um, you know, fortunately on, on Google searches and you mm -hmm. know, similar searches that they, they come up. Um, and some of those organizations, particularly DBSA or the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, even have... Um, groups that meet in many parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wasn't quite ready yet to seek care, but they wanted to go to a group, hear more about it, maybe hear a lecture about uh, depression or hear other people speaking about their own experience with depression or anxiety, that that's a good format. It always makes sense to consider talking with your primary care doctor, that primary care doctors are increasingly well-educated when it comes to depression and anxiety and often can begin to provide treatment. You don't necessarily need to see 
a mental health provider, um, although that would also be a good step to consider, but you could start with your primary care um, uh, doctor. If somebody wanted to see a mental health provider and doesn't have leads, and maybe they don't have a primary care doctor or they've spoken with their primary care doctor and their primary care doctor can't help them, um, then often calling, if they have insurance um, on the back of their insurance card, often there'll be a mental health number to call to find out who are the providers in your network. And that's, that's a, a beginning way to find uh, providers. There, there are other websites. As I said, Mental Health America has um, resources for mental health treatment. Um, Psychology Today um, has a website uh, where you can also put in your zip code and um, uh, get a list of providers. Um, so there are a number of different avenues for getting help. Um, the really important thing is to take the first steps. That's the hardest thing, is when, particularly when you're depressed or when you're paralyzed by anxiety, making those first steps, making the first calls is, is really difficult. And sometimes what it takes is to ask a good friend um, you know, so simply getting on the phone and trying to make an appointment sometimes feels like it's it's such a hurdle. And then if you get rejected, somebody says, "Sorry, I don't take your insurance," or "Sorry, I'm all full," you know, uh, full, "Full, I can't see you um, as a patient." Um, if you're already depressed, it just feels like a rejection, and you're not going to call again for another month or two. Mm -hmm. If you have a friend with you that you trust, um, uh, that friend can help you make those calls. Uh, so taking the first steps are, are really the hardest um, steps to take, but uh, but really crucial. I think one thing to say is um, most of us during our lives have had somebody, uh, a roommate, a family member, a uh, co-worker um, who we've been concerned about and um, sometimes it feels inappropriate um, to tread on somebody's privacy. But again, because um, depression or anxiety can just seem like part of life, somebody doesn't actually step out of themselves and say, oh, I have depression or I have anxiety. It just feels like this is who I am. This is what's happening. I'm just a defective person. Um, sometimes it's very supportive to somebody to say something like, you know, I, I've noticed you haven't been yourself lately. Um, you know, you, you seem a little bit more tired or you seem a little bit down um, or you've lost weight. Um, uh, I just want you to know that I'm here for you. Um, sometimes just hearing that is uh, is helpful to that person. Again, it, it can act as a wake-up call that that person might not have realized how bad things had gotten because they've just sunk into this state over a period of weeks or months. Um, and as a, as a good colleague or family member, um, it's not intruding on their privacy um, to say, yeah, I, I, I'm here for you. I've noticed you, 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 know, you, you haven't seen yourself. Um, and often it makes a tremendous difference in helping somebody notice that something is going on um, and that they need help. And they might feel also comfortable about asking you if, if you could help take the first steps with them, which might be looking on the internet or calling their primary care doctor or taking at least those first steps to get them into care. When we hear about depression, it seems like one condition, but what we learn throughout these episodes is that it's not as clear-cut as we may think. From symptoms and diagnosis to treatment, depression has many different aspects that both doctors and patients have to take into consideration. These aspects include the affected neurotransmitters and brain regions and what remedies are best for different people. We hope that after listening to this two-part series, you walk away with more knowledge about the different forms of depression and their treatments. By increasing the awareness and understanding of depression, we strive to decrease the stigma surrounding the disorder. 
As they say, it takes a village and those who have depression are not alone. There are scientists like Dr. Alpert actively researching better ways to diagnose and treat the disorders, and there is institutions like Google making it easier to seek help. Visit our website, neuronear.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. John Alpert. You can find him on Twitter at Jonathan E. Alpert. You can also follow us on social media at NarnerCast to leave comments on today's episode or to get in touch with us directly. Email us at narnerpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.